Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. One of the events our family loves to do is to have a little bonfire. And if you say that to your children, like if you have little children or grandchildren, you say, let's do a bonfire. Kids light up. They love it, don't they? There's something about fire that children and men <laughs> like. And uh, when you have a fire, you have different types of people that sit around it. You know, you have the person who likes to poke it. And you have the person who tries to avoid the smoke. You know, they're always moving, trying to avoid that. Some ladies in here that's like, that's me. And you have the person that's watching all the children. It's usually one of the ladies as well. Watching all the children, make sure they're not going to fall in the fire. And, you know, the Mr. Safety or Mrs. Safety there. And, uh, and then you have the people who hopefully are doing what you're supposed to do there. And, you know, they have their little stick, they have their hot dog or their marshmallow roasting hot. And they're actually trying to obey the, the rules of the fire pit there. And uh, you have different people around it. But I, one of the things that's interesting about a fire is that it's a very dangerous thing, right? But it's also a very enjoyable thing as long as you follow, quote unquote, the guidelines or what you should do around a fire. I'm actually going to light a fire this morning. Not th- literally, but in God's word. And it can be a very dangerous topic to talk about. And some people take it and they poke that fire. Some people jump in the fire. Okay. And that's not a good thing to do. And hopefully I'm just going to help us understand how does God want us to interact with that fire in a biblical way and actually use that fire for his glory. And you're like, okay, what are you talking about? Well, it's the topic of marriage and divorce. And, uh, and those topics like that can be very very difficult to talk about. And it is like a fire in some sense, right? Every one of us in here has been burnt in some way in some type of relationship of uh, difficulties in marriage or even divorce. In fact, I would probably guess that most of us have either a relative in here or maybe personally or a relative or even a friend that has been divorced and it's affected us in some way, right? And so again, It's a very sensitive topic we're talking about today. We're talking about marriage, divorce, sexuality, gender, identity. I mean, and I'm not talking about it. Jesus is. So we're going to go around this fire. We're going to seek not get burnt by it or help us to understand how God wants us to interact with that fire and actually live very biblically in regard to the, the good fire of marriage, but also sometimes very painful. So let's do this. Let's look at Mark chapter 10. Let's see what Jesus has to say about all this. Would you look at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16? Let's do this, or verse 12, I'm sorry. Let's do this in reverence to God's word. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? If you're able to, you don't have to stand. Mark chapter 10, verse 1 says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we believe that every word of God is breathed out, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's profitable to us, no matter if we're married, not married, no matter what stage of life we're in. And it can help us, give us it gives us truth, doctrine. It tells us what's wrong in this world, reproof. And it can correct the wrong. And then it can instruct us to how we can trust you to continue to walk with you so we can be the people of God that you want us to be. So I pray this morning that these truths from your word will become real to us 
First and foremost, may we understand truly what Jesus taught and not just what we think. And may the truth be proclaimed in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Mark 10, we see Jesus traveling south toward Jerusalem. And he crosses over the Jordan. And again, he's making his way to Jerusalem because he is going to soon be suffer and die and be resurrected. But he crosses the Jordan on the other side. And as was his custom, when he met a group of people, what did he do? He taught them. And as was the custom for the Pharisees, whenever they met Jesus, what did they do? They tried to destroy him. So that's what you see here. They are trying to discredit Jesus and destroy him and his ministry. And so in Mark chapter 10, they do that by throwing out what they thought would be a trap, a trick. It says in the, in the Bible here, a test. And the trap was the trap of what does Jesus think about divorce? That's always a trap <laughs> or it can be. In fact, I was thinking, I think about um, when I got ordained, uh, I sat there for two hours and men were questioning me and it was pretty intense and I was tired. And after two hours, I thought, oh, finally, I mean, we're about done, right? And so we're about to wrap up and a man raises his hand in the back and says, what's your view on divorce and remarriage? And the next half hour didn't go so well. <laughs> and uh, it was an interesting time. It was, it was fine, but it, it always kind of causes controversy, doesn't it? In fact, I was just thinking through, I thought, you know, Actually, church history has been shaped by the controversy of divorce. If you remember Martin Luther, 1521, he took a stand against the Catholic Church and their heresy uh, about works-based salvation. And he exalted God's word as a sole authority for faith and practice. And then King Henry VIII, you know the song? I'm Henry VIII, I am, I am. Anyone know that? Anyone? Raise your hand if you know that song. Okay, there you go. Everyone that's old in here. He actually defended the Pope. Listen, he defended the Pope and came against Martin Luther. And he was called by the Pope the defender of the faith. But then a decade later, the same Henry VIII, I am, I am, he wanted a divorce. So he rejected the Catholic Church, established his own church, which we call the Anglican Church now. And you know how it happened? Because he wanted a divorce. So he rejected a heretical church so that he could live his sinful lifestyle. But it's amazing how God in his providence like, even moves the hearts of people to do what he wants in the end, even though they're rejecting him. But the point is, is that the same controversy took place back in Jesus' day. So they asked the question in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What's your view, Jesus? Now, this was a trap. And why is that? Well, it's, it's a twofold trap. Number one, part of the trap, I believe, was to destroy an attempt to destroy Jesus in the same way that John the Baptist was terminated. Remember John the Baptist who preached uh, in the, actually in the same area in the Jordan, over the Jordan right here and baptized people. In fact, do this with me. Would you flip back to Mark chapter six and just see this? The, the man who, uh, the governor of this area, the, the king, the Herod of this area was a man named Herod Antipas and he was the one that actually arrested John the Baptist and then ended up Herodias was the one that um, had him, his head uh, taken off. And if you remember the, the I kind of put a little graph up here of the family tree of the Herods because it's a really confusing thing. You know, you got Herod the Great, who was the Herod, the king, when Jesus was born, right? He was the one that commanded all uh, babies two years of age and younger be killed in Bethlehem. Then he died, and he had children, and two of his sons, one was named Herod Philip, one was named Herod Antipas. They ruled different regions. Listen, okay, so keep, keep this straight. Herod Philip was married to his niece. So that's, that's incest. That's sinful. Herodias. Herodias divorced Herod Philip and then married her other uncle, Herod Antipas. They had a pretty messed up family, okay? But the point is, is that John the Baptist gets up, and he preaches against this marriage and divorce, this divorce, and also the marriage, I think, of incest there. So look at uh, Mark six seventeen, and it says, For it was Herod, and this is Herod Antipas, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, who he got divorced and now was married to, because he had married her. Verse 18, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, and eventually she was successful. And John the Baptist's head was removed. 
So think about it. They're in the same region that Herod Antipas rules. And so let's bring this controversy up and see what Jesus, how Jesus responds to it. And I'm sure the, the hope of the Pharisees was that Jesus would step in something and would cause a problem with Herod Antipas and Herodias. And maybe they would do to Jesus what they did to John the Baptist. And the second, I think, trap was just that they wanted to discredit Jesus in front of all the people. Divorce was a common thing back then. So if Jesus takes a hard line on this, he's going to lose his following. So how did Jesus respond? Well, notice a few Notice a few things. First of all, Jesus taught what he was against before he taught what he was for. So think about it. First, he taught what he was, I'm sorry. First, he taught what he was for before he taught what he was against. I messed that up. First, he taught what he was for. So he's for marriage God's way before he talked about what he was against. In other words, Jesus taught what was right, God's view of marriage, and then let that contrast with what was wrong, humans' rejection of biblical marriage. I want you to also notice something as we look at this passage. Jesus based his opinions and his belief upon the scripture. And he dogmatically here teaches about uh, marriage and divorce based upon the authority of God's word. And it's crazy to think about that because he's God. Like he actually can give new revelation. He has another place he's given new revelation But actually, when he's teaching here, what he does is he puts his feet firmly upon the word of God. And he calls these Pharisees to do the same. And so notice in verse 3, he says throughout this passage, starting in verse 3, basically, what does the scripture say? So verse 3, he answered them to their question. And he says, basically, what did Moses say? Or what does the Bible say about this? And then in verses 6, 7, and 8, Jesus gave his position based upon the exegesis of Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So what's interesting is that Jesus never, never contradicted the Old Testament scriptures. But even more amazing, he built his teaching upon the authority of scripture. And you say, well, why do you say all this, Ben? Because the question about marriage and divorce and sexuality and all these things really is a question of authority. It's a question of authority. Like, who gets to define what marriage is? Like, who decides what is restricted just to marriage? Who decides if divorce is a good option? On what basis do our opinions about relationship and marriage and divorce, how are they formed? And so I think that's such an important thing because in our society, right, everything is out there. In fact, this past year, there was a law passed in California. In our public schools now, children are very clearly being taught the exact opposite of what the Scripture teaches. And we're facing that on on a daily basis in our state, in our country, in our world, in the media. And the question comes to this. Who has the right to say what is right and wrong in regard to these kind of relationships, and particularly marriage? And if we are our own authority... Or if we look to society as the authority or or maybe some smart person that people have deemed smart, some professor or some person out there as our authority, then we are rejecting God as our authority. And and I think I want you to notice I was watching a YouTube this past week of a guy that was talking about he's a quote unquote evangelical gay pastor, just contradiction, right? And he was basically saying, you know, well, this is what I believe about. Um, about marriage and about a marriage between a man and a man. And and so he was saying his opinion. It's interesting. He said that his credentials, his studies about the Bible, were his authority for what he was saying was true. What you you see, it's interesting, is when people give their opinions, they do point to some kind of authority, right? There's some kind of authority. Well, this person, this study, this is... But in the end of the day, it all comes back to the authority is man himself. And you end up being your own authority. And so God's word is thrown out and man's word is replaced. We replace God with me. We replace his authoritative uh, word with my thoughts, my opinions, maybe society's thoughts. So if I believe marriage is between a man and a man, then it's a marriage because it's up to me, right? I mean, I could decide what's truth for myself if I replace my word with, if I replace God's word with my word, or if I don't. Want to stay in a marriage? 
Who cares? I just want to do what makes me happy. And I can decide to do whatever I want to do if, if it's really about my will, not God's will. So my, my point is when you establish yourself or something else as, God, as the authority, then you can do whatever you want, really. But you're rejecting God and you're rejecting his word. So what Jesus does here, he's, he basically establishes the very beginning. He's like, the authority for your view on marriage and divorce and sexuality and all these things must be based upon God's word. And even Jesus, who is God himself, did that. And he demonstrated that for, for us. So the question we must ask is, what does God say? And I think about there's children in here right now. Right, And you might go to a school that teaches this, or I should say that, that doesn't teach what God's word says. You will definitely have friends that don't teach this, what God's word says. So you got to, I guess I want you to think about this, whether you're a, a child or whether you are a teenager or even if you're anyone in this room. And the question is, what is the foundation for truth? What's the foundation for your faith? And man's opinions change. They've changed a lot. And unfortunately, the church has many times uh, decided that they themselves are going to be the authority. And so they've acted in ways that are unrighteous and un, not uh, co- correct. But we must always go back to the truth of God's word and say, anything I believe about God and, and what, what, is re- what he reveals must come from the revealed word of God. You might think, well, I, I, be- I believe this because that's how I grew up, you know. Or, or, well, I don't want a, a marriage like my parents, so I'm going to do it this way. Or, or I'm old enough, I can do whatever I want, or everyone else is doing this. But, so I just want you to answer this question for me in your mind. Is your dating, if you're single and you're dating, is your marriage, if you're married, is your view of relationships, is it based upon God's word? God created each one of you in this, in this room here, in this world, to enjoy him and glorify him. And God fashioned relationships in such a way that you can best enjoy God in this world. And he founded and initiated an idea of marriage and sexuality and gender in in life because he knows that would give him the greatest glory and you the greatest joy. The sense that we must look to God, his revelation, and trust his ideas. He created it. I think he probably knows what's. So Jesus calls the people and the Pharisees to seek the truth of God's word in regard to marriage and divorce. So look at verse number three. He answered them, what did Moses command you? And then verse four, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Now, Moses wrote five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch. Those are the first five books of the Bible. Pentateuch literally means five scrolls or five um, containers, vessels where the scrolls go. And the Pharisees had those five books that they could have picked and all the verses in there they could have gone to about marriage, but they decided to quote or reference one section in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, one through four. It's really four obscure verses to try to justify what they were doing in means of divorcing and divorce in their society. And we are not going to talk about this passage this week. Okay. Cause next week I'm going to talk more about uh, the divorce side of things this week. I'm talking more about the marriage side of things, but if you were to read Deuteronomy 24, it actually doesn't deal with marriage and then becoming divorced. It actually deals with remarriage after a divorce. When Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24, he was addressing something that already exists. People are already getting divorced. They're getting remarried. And Moses was not mandating or creating a divorce as an option. Moses was trying to stop legalized adultery. You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, basically what was happening, it was kind of like this, because it was so easy to get a divorce at this time. What would happen is someone would say, you know, I'm married to this woman right here, but tonight I want to do something else. So they would go out with a woman. They say, I'm going to divorce her today. I'm going to marry this woman. So they get married to that woman, you know, just for that night. Then they would next day say, well, I'm going to divorce her now and go back to my first wife. And he's like, that that can't happen. That's like legalized adultery right there, right? We're not doing that. Okay. So you need to, if you're going to do a divorce, you have to have a certificate and you actually can't go back to your first wife. So stop that. So what, what he's doing here, he's actually, Moses was not mandating or creating divorce as an option. Moses here was trying to stop something that was actually very destructive to the social fabric of the, um, of the Jewish society there. 
And so what did, what was, why did Moses then write those four verses? Well, look verse 5 there. Jesus says in Mark 10, 5, he says, And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. He wrote this part, these four verses in Deuteronomy 24. So what did Moses actually teach about marriage and then divorce? And so what we're going to look at again this week is we're going to look at the divine structure of marriage. And then next week, we'll study the divine union of marriage. So first of all, the divine structure of marriage. God structured marriage to be limited to one male and one female together as one for life. So Jesus presented here God's view of marriage by going back to the beginning. So go, would you go with me back to Genesis chapter number one to the very beginning? God created the material and immaterial world in this chapter, Genesis chapter one. And in this time, that first week there, he actually established the institution of marriage. And so if marriage is God's institution and it's his idea, then he gets to define how it works. And, and Jesus, as you're turning there, Jesus said in, in Mark ten six, he said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And he was referencing Genesis chapter one. You can see Genesis 1, 27. So when God created the world, what were the two, who were the two special creatures that he made in his image? And so Jesus was quoting this verse, Genesis 1, 27. So look at Genesis 1, 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we as humans are made in the image of God. That means we represent God on this earth and we were created to reflect him in a special way. And it's interesting that we as God's special creation are made in his image and we are reflecting that in a very distinct way. We are male and female. And think about it. This is day six. This is happening. We're living in a perfect world. They're living in a perfect world. This moment, Adam and Eve were created and they were standing there before God as equals. That's what you see. there, standing as equals in person and in dignity and as a reflection of God's image. But they're presented here as equal yet distinct as male and female. And I want, what I want you to see from this verse, if you just look at this verse, you notice in this verse, there's not one gender that's lifted above another in dignity. There's not one that says it's one that is, uh, is, is better than another. Both male and female were equal, but yet they were distinct. Or said, I should say it this way, they were equal in person, but they were distinct in their genders. And our society likes to preach that male and females are equal, so that's true. But what they do is they equate the word equal with sameness. So it's like if you are the same, therefore you are equal. And that's, that's a wrong idea of equality. Someone that is the same, uh, someone, you can be equal and not be the same, right? So sometimes you hear it like this. Women can do that just like boys can do it. And that, so it's a false idea behind that, that equality is based upon sameness. But the scriptures teach and science confirms that men and women are different, right? I mean, that's kind of like a duh for us. For most people, it's like men and women are different biologically, psychologically. It, there's clearly a difference and distinction there between men and women. But that right there, what, I, what I'm talking about, that's heresy in our culture. That's heresy to say that men and women are, are different because, and, and like I said, it seems obvious to us, but because roles are different, there's different roles and different gifts in our society. They believe that that means that people are unequal. But in God's view, he intentionally made humans in two distinct flavors, <laughs> two distinct varieties, male and female. And they're both equal in value, right? And we need to make sure that we think about that and make sure that we actually think like that. Men and women deserve to be treated both equally with respect in honor, men should not be selfish dictators who view women as, as inferior creatures to be, to be trodden and to be berated. Women should not treat men like stupid, savage idiots, right? And there's, there's both of those there. Like men can look down on women. Women can look down on men. But actually in God's view, they're both equal in 
personhood and in dignity, but yet they're distinct as male and female. And it's interesting when Jesus taught on marriage, his first point was that the foundation to marriage is God's creation of two genders, male and female. In order to understand God's view of marriage, you must recognize and appreciate that God created distinctly humans in two distinct varieties, male and female. And the purpose of God's creation of those two distinct genders was for the union of of marriage. And the distinction of male and female coming together in union of marriage was actually one of God's special strategies so that humans could fulfill his plans for his glory. In other words, God is glorified when a male and a female come together in marriage and he, as the husband, fulfills his role and she, as the female, fulfills her role according to her gifts and he fulfills his role according to his gift. Like, actually, that union brings glory to God. I think about, I think about the fact that uh, each of us probably have a key somewhere on us and it probably fits in a lock and some kind of deadbolt or something. And you think about this key and you think about this deadbolt right here and they actually need each other, don't they? There's a sense where if you look at that key and you look at the deadbolt, there's not one that's better than the other. Is the key better than the deadbolt? Is the deadbolt better than the key? What's the answer? No, they're different. They have different attributes. They have different qualities about them. They, they do different things, but they actually fulfill the same purpose, don't they? They lock your house. They keep you safe. And there's a sense where when you think about the distinction of male and female coming together in marriage, it, it, you think about a key and a deadbolt. And the idea is that they fit together and God put them together to fulfill a special purpose. Is there one better than the other? No, they're just different. And actually, that's a good thing in God's view because it actually helps us to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. And so God is glorified when a male and a female come together in marriage and a man fulfills his role with his gifts and a female fulfills her role with his gifts. In fact, look down in, in Genesis 1, 28. So he creates them male and female. In verse 28, we kind of see how that's lived out. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So what's the point of the distinction of male and female? It's that they come together in union to have children and to steward what God has given them. And they do that together, fulfilling their distinct roles using their male and female faculties, right? And so God says this is an important part of marriage, this distinction. That's God's design. Now you think about it. If, if you were Satan, you were thinking, how can I destroy this world? How can I defame the glory of God? How can I destroy the lives of people? What would be your biggest target you would go after? Well, you'd probably start with the very first thing here in Genesis chapter number one about marriage. And that's the distinction between male and female. You would probably confuse people to think that equality equals sameness. You'd probably try to erase the male and female gender distinctions. You probably would try to add some genders in there, right? See how many we can add in there or teach children. You could just choose whatever gender you want to have, which is biologically dumb, but it's what people do, right? In fact, I was reading an article that from ABC News on February 13, 2014, that Facebook allows users to select between three pronouns, him, her, and there, and ABC found 58 gender options that you could identify on Facebook. So here are some of them up there. Honestly, I thought, I'm going to read through some of them. I don't even know what they mean. So it's very confusing. How did, who came up with 58? I don't know. It's probably one guy's job there at Facebook. But we live in a society that rejects God's word for man's changing corrupt ideas. I mean, there's 58 today. What is it going to be? Well, that was actually 2014. How many genders are there today? There could be a lot more, probably like a hundred, right? So man's ideas change, but God's unchanging word is forever settled in heaven. And God in his wisdom created two distinct genders, male and female. And so we can, you know, think about these things and say, oh, that's, that's not what our culture teaches. So we need to make sure we're founded on God's word. And that's, that's good to do. But also I think it's good for us to step back and think, okay, do I appreciate, do I appreciate those distinctions. If you're in here today and you're married, sometimes we can be very frustrated by them, right? 
In fact, sometimes we can, and even in our society, we can um, mock the other gender. We can look down on the other gender instead of seeing how God created them as a blessing and embracing the different roles and the different makeup of the genders. And so God constructed marriage to be limited to one male and one female together as one for life. So Genesis chapter 2 gives more details of Genesis chapter 1. So go to Genesis chapter 2. I think Genesis 2 is a window into Genesis one twenty-seven. So Genesis chapter 1 gives the creation week. And then Genesis chapter 2 says, okay, here's what happened on day Six. So look at Genesis chapter two, verse 18 says the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So at this point in day six, there's all these animals, there's male and female everywhere, these different animals, but there's only one male human. There's not a male. There's not a female human. And God did this on purpose. It's kind of like a real life illustration. God was trying to make a point here. And what's interesting is he says, at this point, he says that everything is good. Day one, it's good. Day two, it's good. Day three, day four, day five. And then day six, this is the first time he says in a perfect world that something is not good. And what is that? There's not a helper comparable. There's not a helper there for Adam. He, he didn't have, he wasn't complete yet. There was something that he needed. And the point I think it's demonstrated with the contrast between the other animals. And as Adam looks at those other animals and answers them, he's like, oh, that's something different. Like, they all have someone that's there to partner with them in life. And, yeah, where's my partner at? Like, I don't have anyone here. And so that's the point, Jesus, the, the point the Bible is making. So Adam needs another gender. <laughs> like, where's my female at around here? And so God designed male and female to unite together to fulfill God's purpose. So what was Adam's role? Like, what was his role? What was his purpose, you could say? Well, look at Genesis 2, 15. You look at the end of that. The Bible says that he was to work the garden and care for it. What was Eve's role? Genesis 2, 18 says that she was um, the helper. She was to be a helper that would complement Adam and enable him to do what God had called him to do. Now, when I say compliment, I'm not talking about he's, she's flattering him. You know, like, oh, you got big muscles today, Adam. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that. She fit well with him, that she, that she and her uh, strengths fulfilled what he lacked in his weaknesses, and they fit well together. So in a unique way, as male and female, they were able to come together to fulfill God's purposes. I think about another illustration that I've used before and think about marriage and just think about the fact that there's two people that come together who are different. You think about scissors like this and in some sense, scissors are one, right? It's one, but it's actually made up of two pieces. And you actually need the contrast of scissors in order to have scissors fulfill their purpose. Like if they don't have the contrast, if they don't go opposite ways in this way, you know, if they don't have that contrast, they don't fulfill their purpose. And so the point is, is you have two that come together as one. And actually, it's very important that they have two distinct roles. And that's the same thing is true in a marriage. God has made us male and female. And in a marriage, they come together with two distinct roles. Actually, that's a very good thing. What are those two differing roles? Well, they go with two complementing roles. The husband is to serve as the loving leader. So he lovingly serves his wife, fulfills the purpose for which God has made him. So God gifted him. And equipped him to do this. And then, then Eve was the, to be the honoring helper. That's her role. And sometimes people hear helper and they think, oh, that's such a demeaning word. You know? Sometimes people think of it. They think of this little child. It's like, help me. I need help, daddy. You know? And that's actually not what the Jewish people would have read here. In fact, interesting enough, the word helper here is a word that's used for God. It's the name of God. He is our helper. My help comes from the Lord. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. So he is my help. Psalm 115.9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help. Same Hebrew word and their shield. Of course, the Holy Spirit is our helper. Interesting enough, the Holy Spirit is God. He's superior to us, but yet he's our helper. And so the picture here is not of an inferior person helping a superior person. It's actually 
the opposite of that. It's the idea is that both of them have dignity and worth, but they work in a different way. And they serve each other in a way that fulfills their distinct roles for the glory of God. I'm not going to go through all these different roles. You know, you might have a lot of questions about this. Honestly, I just encourage you, read Ephesians chapter 5, First uh, Peter chapter 3, and I could give you some other New Testament passages. But I think we need to pause and just praise God, praise God that he made us different. That's actually a good thing, isn't it? That God made us unique and allows us to join together in marriage to fulfill God's purposes for his glory. And the husband and his masculinity, if you want to say, equips him to be the loving leader of his marriage. So that's how God equipped him. That's why God has given him the gifts he has. A, a, a wife's femininity, 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 that's a hard one to say. Being feminine equips her to be the honoring helper that balances his weaknesses with her strengths. And now let's think about it. When sin entered the world, it twisted all that, right? And it turned his masculinity into something that was hurtful to her and her femininity into something that was hurtful to him. And so, so sin has messed a lot of that up. But the point is, is that, that God, by his grace, can restore a person in a marriage to what he originally intended. So those good gifts and distinctions actually serve the other person for his glory. So look down at verse 19. Genesis two nineteen. So Adam was being shown by God that he needs someone to complete him. Verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to all the birds of the heaven, to the beasts of the field. And for Adam, so here's the pull point. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. It's like, where's mine? Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with his flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had given, uh, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Now, you ever wondered, why did God do it that way? <laughs> you ever thought that? Like, well, don't you think God does things on purpose? Like, if he has something in there, I think sometimes you got to ask yourself the question, why did he do it that way? And I think God had a purpose. And here's, here's the point God was trying to make here. And that, has, it, that is that God is the one who brings a man and a woman together in union. And this here for Adam is a real life illustration. And God demonstrated that he, God, is the one who brings a man and woman together in marriage. And that joining of a man and woman in marriage creates the closest of all human relationships. That joining together of a man and a woman in marriage creates the closest of all human relationships. You're like, well, how do you know that was the point? Look down in verse 23. Then the man said, this, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then, therefore, what should we conclude from all this? Well, Moses gives us a commentary and says, here's the conclusion. Verse 24, therefore, a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So like God made Eve from Adam... And he was the one that united them together, created that union. Whenever a person leaves his father and mother and makes a, a vow of covenant, a oneness with a man and a woman together, when they make that vow together, God is the one that's joining them together. They become one flesh. So marriage creates a oneness that brings a man and woman together and they form the closest of all human bonds. And it's a covenant of oneness a covenant of oneness so it's important for us to understand this you're like why, why are you what are you getting what's the point of this well i think jesus was was driving to this point in fact go back to mark chapter number 10 mark chapter 10 and jesus was coming to this point of trying and i think probably what jesus taught was a lot longer than what's here and we know that because matthew expanded a little bit so i think this is a summary of what jesus taught 
And so what Jesus was teaching as he was going through this is that marriage creates a oneness. And they're brought together by God. And you can look in verse number, uh, you can look down in verse number 7 and verse 8. And there's that quotation from Genesis chapter 2. And that's the famous leave, cleave, and what? Help me out here. Weave, right? Anyone ever heard that before? So a lot of pastors go through that. That's their outline. I don't know. That's probably inspired. I don't know. It seems like I hear it a lot. But it's an interesting, like, uh, division of that passage. And I think it's, it's true. So first of all, you are to leave your father and mother. So Jesus is the one. He quotes Genesis. But he's teaching this. This is what oneness looks like. The marriage union means you, you leave your, your previous loyalties and obligations for someone else. Marriage brings a new primary allegiance that you're united with that person. So you leave, and then what do you do next? You hold fast. He holds fast to his wife. And the whole idea of hold fast is the idea that it's a picture that you hold on to something and you won't let go. Ever been to something really high like a, like a cliff or a, a building and you have stuff in your hands? I don't know about you, but I'm like holding on to my camera or if it's one of my kids especially, <laughs> I'm holding on to them. And you don't, I'm not going to let go of that up there, am I? And that's the idea of marriage. I'm holding fast to this person. I'm not going to let go. It's kind of the, the picture of the covenant I have that I'm, I'm making a promise. I'm keeping that for life. And the last one is that kind of the idea of weave. It's the idea there in verse number um, eight, where it says the two shall become one flesh. And so what, one of the things I want you to see is that marriage is a man and a woman covenanting together as one in life and in Christ to fulfill God's purposes for his glory. They come together as one. And that includes the physical relationship. Marriage is honorable and all. And the bed is undefiled. That includes spiritually coming together. That means you pray together. That means you read the Bible together. You share Christ together. It means you come together economically and socially. And sometimes people view marriage as like, well, two lives that are separate trying to make it work. That's actually not God's view of marriage. It's actually two lives that are coming together as one and live life and approach life as one. So it's, it's a married couple approaching life and career and kids together, covenanting together as one. And so Jesus' point here is this, is that marriage creates a oneness. And so look at Jesus' conclusion there. Look at Jesus' conclusion in verse number 8. He says, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is not in Genesis. This is Jesus. Listen to this. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Oh, wait. What if we are the ones that decided to come together in marriage? Can't we just dissolve it? What does Jesus say? They are no longer two, but one flesh. And Jesus gives more commentary on Genesis chapter 2, and he says the next verse, verse 9, probably one of the most controversial statements of all time, because it hits home. And that is, he said, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus' view of marriage was that God is the one who joins the couple together in marriage, and therefore you should not separate that marriage. As a counselor, I sit down with a number of people and I have for 14 years talk about marriage counseling and, and difficulties people are having in marriage. It's interesting. You see pretty much about three issues, the, the issues that marriages are struggling with. Sometimes you could lump a, a fourth in there too. Number one, and let me back up and say what's interesting is that Jesus covers all of those here. Like look in verse number six. Jesus speaks of the, Creation of male and female. I think one of the major struggles I find in counseling is that people actually are confused about their roles in the marriage. There's, sometimes there's a lack of appreciation for how God has made the other person. Sometimes there's actually just an ignorance of what their role is in that marriage. I think it's probably why Paul and Peter talk a lot about that. That's why Peter, I think, writes in 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Like, you probably need to try to figure it out. You're never really going to figure her out, right? But you should try to. And you should try to learn what makes her tick and how she's different from you. 
Verse 7, look at verse 7. You should leave your father and mother. Honestly, in-laws, family, cause a lot of marital problems. And you're, you're in here and you're one of those in-laws. You might think, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm causing problems. You know, sometimes that happens. How about uh, verse 8? Intimacy. Maybe there's unfaithfulness or adultery or pornography or maybe intimacy is used as a weapon. And the fourth one I picked out of actually the next thing I'm going to teach on, that's verse 22, and it's money. There's a man that was rich, and he loved money more than he loved God, and he worshiped that. People surrender to to the temptation of those problems, and they choose to reject God's plan for marriage and God's union of marriage. And so sometimes what they choose to do, they say, you know what? We're done. We are going to separate. And what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, he said, don't do that. Don't do that. So what's the answer? Like, if we have those problems, what's the answer? Well, isn't that the why Jesus came to this world? He came to forgive. He came to restore. And he actually came to make us in his likeness. So in the very first chapter, very first two chapters, God created a male and female in the image of God. And you know what's actually Jesus is doing to the, the believer in here? He's changing us to be more like Jesus. So we all... With unveiled face, behold in a glass the glory of Jesus, and we're changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. We're changed to be more like Jesus. So how should we conclude this? Some of you might be in here, you'd be like, I kind of feel left out. Okay? Well, if you're married, let me talk to you. If you're married, I think you probably should ask this question to your spouse when you go home today or sometime Tonight, maybe. Are we living as one? Are we living as one? Are we living as one in worship before God? Are we living as one in intimacy? Are we living as one in our decisions, in our plans? I mean, are we living as one in celebrating God's uniqueness and how he's made us and our unique roles that he's given us? And I think go into that conversation with an openness that the answer could be no. You probably already know in your heart, right? And go into it with the humility of needing to confess your sin, seeking God's grace for your marriage. Maybe you're dating in here, okay? So this is a question. Maybe you guys need to go on a date this week and ask this question. Are we cultivating a dating relationship that will help us live someday as a married copy with a healthy oneness? Let me kind of rephrase that. Are we cultivating a dating relationship that will give us a healthy oneness when we are married? So the idea is, is that are we, are we doing things right now that's actually going to help us be, uh, live as a married couple in oneness when we get married someday? Because hopefully that's what you're pursuing if you're dating that person. And I think if, if you're not or you're doing something that's going to hinder that oneness someday, then, again, I think you need to confess and seek God's grace. If you're single in here or you're divorced or you're widowed, I think you need to study some passages that could help you. I'm not going to go through those this morning. But Jesus actually teaches that you have a gift that God has given you, a unique gift to actually be one with the church and to unite with the church to fulfill God's purpose. So it's actually a very special role that you have in this world as well. If you're single and you actually have the availability in some, some sense, maybe a more freedom to be able to serve the Lord without the restraints of serving another person you're married to. And maybe you're a person in here and you think, everything I heard from you today, I really hate because I don't believe it. (laughs) Well, I hope that you evaluate what I said according to God's word. Is this what God's word teaches? Honestly, if there's something in here I taught, that's my opinion, I hope you reject it. Because I don't want to teach my opinion. Because who cares what Ben's opinion is? But I hope that you'll look at God's word and say, what does God actually say about this? And friend... It's very important that we listen to God. And if you're living a sinful lifestyle, if you're outside of God's will, let me invite you to find grace and forgiveness in Christ. God is the good creator. He designed this world to bring him glory. And he's also the good redeemer who can rescue and he can restore the joy of salvation. And so let me encourage you to look to the Lord. Let's pray. As we bow our heads and just go before the Lord in prayer, let me give you an opportunity just to talk to the Lord in your own heart. And if you're married, maybe you need to ask the Lord before you ask your spouse, are we living in oneness, Lord? 
show me, Lord, how I can better fulfill the, fulfill the role that you have for me. Or maybe you are dating and just ask the Lord, Lord, am I doing what I should right now to help us live in oneness someday? And maybe you desire to be married, maybe you don't, but you're single, whatever reason. Maybe you just need to talk to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to focus on pursuing you and serving the church. Father, what we've talked about today is a very difficult issue because it actually is very personal. But you care. You care about these issues. You care about us. Jesus, you came to this world and you lived, you died, or resurrected to rescue us from the rejection that we have had in regard to some of these areas right here we talked about today. So I think there might be a person in this room. It could be a couple people in this room that maybe are really struggling with this. I pray that that Holy Spirit, you'll convict them about truth and you'll lead them to the truth of your word. And may they disregard anything that I say, but may they really truly regard what your word says. And I pray for us in here, those who are married. God, we want marriages that truly reflect the relationship that Christ has with his church. We truly want to bring you glory. And think about some people in here who maybe are just dating. They're looking to marry that person. I do pray, God, you just give them grace and wisdom to know how to walk that road in purity and to to be careful so that they can have a marriage that um, that they won't have the taint of any mistakes they've made. And God, I pray for our society. We live in a broken society. My heart breaks for these children in our state and in our country who will be taught really these vile lies about sexuality, about gender, about relationships. And God, it's so destructive. I pray for us in here as believers that our hearts will go out to these people and not in a, not a rejection of their culture, but actually in the love to see them know the truth. God, give us a love for these children. And God, give us the opportunity to, to tell them the gospel. I know we're trying to get into a school for the Good News Club at Santa Susana. Like, they're being taught one thing. God, we want to be able to come and teach them the truth. So will you give us that opportunity, God? And, and I pray all of us in here will just have that united heart as one in Christ to um, go out on mission and to tell people the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen.